first of all say how thankful I am to be here with you. I'm, I'm always amazed that God gives me opportunities to meet people um, that love the Lord and um, people that are all over the world that are serving Jesus. And um, I'll tell you, it, it's, it's such an amazing thing to, um, to remember. I mean, we know it theoretically, but when you get an opportunity to see people um, not only locally in the same neighborhood, in the same city, the same zip code, but then you get to go to other parts of the world and you see that there are people that are gathering just like this. Now, the, the dress might be different. The music style might be different. And how the, the order of service might, might look different. But in the end, Jesus is being honored. And Jesus is being glorified. And I, I am, I, I'm just so encouraged to think that how many people tonight in the world are gathering on a Friday night like this because they want to grow deeper in their relationship with Christ. And here you are. And so to be able to, to stand up here and to share with a group of people like this group, it makes tonight super fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to just worshiping together this weekend. And, and I, love, I love the theme of this conference with incorruptible love because that is the love of Jesus towards you and me. His love for us is relentless. His love for us is incorruptible. And so as we spend this weekend talking about this love, um, you know, I, I was thinking... Um, because I've, I've been um, assigned three sessions with you, um, one tonight and then tomorrow and then on Sunday. And, and I was thinking, gosh, what are, the, what are the things that we would want to talk about as we're dealing with the subject of incorruptible love? And to me, as, as Pastor um, Michael shared, I mean, at the core, at the heart of how we think about, how we process, how we apply Christian love, it's got to be centered in Jesus. How we think about loving God and loving one another, it has to orbit around Christ. And so um, some of you were at the um, ministry conference last October, and you remember that I shared a message from Isaiah chapter 6. And, um, and, and the way that I shared that message on King Jesus, it was definitely bent towards ministry but um, I just really felt like I wanted to revisit Isaiah chapter 6 again, but in this setting, at, with this group, and just to talk about Jesus, because really, we can't talk about how we love one another in Christ horizontally until we first understand what it means to love God vertically. And the only way that we're going to be convinced of loving Christ with our whole heart is when we see him for who he really is. Because whenever we try to love God, apart from being convinced of the beauty of Jesus, um, this is where we try to manufacture love. And manufactured love is simply religion. And whenever you try to manufacture worship, you try to manufacture love for God, in the end, there's a point that you hit, it's frustration, it's discouragement, it's disappointment, and you just don't want to do it anymore. But what fuels our vertical love for Jesus is by that daily time spent with eyes wide open and just feasting on the beauty of Christ. And so that's why tonight um, I'm looking forward to just talking about how great our Jesus is 
in the pages of Isaiah chapter 6. So if you don't mind, turn with me to that familiar chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. And this evening what I'd like to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into a message that I've entitled King Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And this evening I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, this evening, we again just want to thank you for the presence of Jesus in this place. Um, Lord, as we spent time singing to you and inviting you here, Lord, we are aware that you're always here. There's never a time that you're not here. And so, Lord, recognizing your presence, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would open up the meaning of these verses to us, that we could get clarity on it, that we can understand it. And in the process of learning together who Jesus is from Isaiah 6, I pray that you would direct us personally um, into the right application of this passage. And so, Father, just thanks again for all the people that are here for all the people that love Jesus, for all the people that worship Jesus. And Lord, I also want to thank you for the people that will end up coming here this weekend that may not necessarily have a healthy relationship with you, but Lord, you brought them here for that specific reason because you want them to have a real healthy relationship with you. And so for that person, we pray that every session, every word that's spoken would speak just fresh, words of grace and truth to them. And Lord, to all of us, me included, I just pray, Father, that as I share your word, that it would go out um, not in word only, but in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me the grace to not get in the way, to not pollute the image of Jesus, but Lord, that we would all see him clearly tonight and this weekend. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the subject 
of Isaiah chapter 6, the verses that we just read tonight, is King Jesus. Now the reason why I say that it's about Jesus is because if you fast forward 700 years into the New Testament, the Apostle John, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 in John chapter 12, verse 41, and he tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Lord that Isaiah saw in this great vision, it was Jesus. He saw Jesus on the throne. And the reason why I call Jesus King Jesus is because in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, that's exactly what Isaiah calls him. The king. And so I love Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 because for me, this passage brings a clear vision of Christ. And so because the scripture is about King Jesus, that means that the sermon is going to be about King Jesus. And this evening, there are five things that I want us to learn about Jesus tonight. We're going to see that Jesus is the divine king. We're going to see that Jesus is the supreme king and the exalted king. And we're going to see that Jesus is the holy king. And we're going to wrap it up talking about the fact that he is the saving king. So here we go. Number one, who is King Jesus? Listen, King Jesus is the divine king. He's the divine king. I want you to look at verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says there, My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Check out that word Lord. It's in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is a word, a name that is worth underlining, highlighting, put an asterisk next to it. Because whenever you read the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all caps, listen, this is God's own personal name. Now, in our English Bibles, when we see the word Lord in all caps, this is the English substitute for the English equivalent of YHWH. Now, sometimes we pronounce that Yahweh, sometimes we pronounce that Jehovah, but listen, this is the name. Lord, in all caps, this is the name that God revealed himself with back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when there at the burning bush, God said to Moses, here's my name, I am who I am. And so Isaiah tells us that this Jesus, this Lord that he sees seated, seated on the throne, he has a name, and his name is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. Listen, Isaiah is teaching us right here that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And this is important for us to get. Jesus was not merely a good man. He was not merely a great prophet. And he's not merely a lowercase g God among many other lowercase g gods. When we talk about Jesus, we are talking about capital letter G, God. And the Bible repeats this fact over and over again. In fact, let me share with you some examples of this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, 
In Philippians 2.6, the New uh, International Version translates those words as, who being in very nature God. I love that. This is Jesus. Who being in very nature God. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul says concerning Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, we know in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. He's invisible to human eyes. But God revealed himself in a person. A man called Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus made the invisible God visible for human eyes. And in 1 John chapter 5 verse 20, and I love this one. In 1 John 5 20, John says concerning Jesus, He is the true God and eternal life. I love that. He is the true God and eternal life. You know what this means? It means that whenever we talk about Jesus, we are talking about the second person of the one triune God. We are talking about someone who is eternal and uncreated. He's holy, sovereign, and supreme. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present at the same time. And He's the maker and the sustainer of all things created. And He's worthy of all worship and worthy of all devotion and worthy of all of our obedience. This is our Jesus. And listen, if this is not your Jesus, then you have embraced the wrong Jesus. There is no other real Jesus than this one. This is the Jesus that we're here talking about. This is the Jesus that we're here to worship and celebrate. So who is this King Jesus that Isaiah saw? Listen, he is the divine king, but number two, he's the supreme king. King Jesus is the supreme king. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And again, attached to that, verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What these words teach us is that King Jesus is supreme over all other kings. King Jesus is supreme over all other kings. In verse 1, I want you to find the word Lord. Now, earlier in verse 5, I just mentioned that in that case, we see Lord in all caps. But in verse 1, we see Lord with capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D. And the reason why we see this different than in verse 5 is because it's a completely different Hebrew word. In verse 5, Lord in all caps is God's name. In verse 1, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d, this is his title. The Hebrew word is Adonai. And Adonai means supreme Lord, Lord of all. And this word stresses the sovereignty of Christ, the sovereignty of God as all ruler. This means that being Adonai, King Jesus is greater than all earthly kings. I'll tell you, in view of all the political and social chaos in the world today, listen, this fact is good news. 
I was here with you last October when the results of the elections came in. And to see on some of your faces the, oh no, that look, I'll tell you what, isn't it good to know that with all that's happening in the world and the way that elections can go and the way that people are in place in government, that above every earthly ruler is King Jesus seated on the throne. He is infinitely greater than all the great kings of earth. And this includes pharaohs and Caesars and kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and diplomats and dignitaries and dictators. Jesus is supreme over all. He alone is king of kings and the Lord of lords. No one else can possess that title. Only Jesus. And listen, King Jesus, he continues to rule when the kings of earth cease to rule. For example, King Jesus is supreme over King Uzziah. The nation of Judah had regarded Uzziah as one of her greatest kings. At the time, King Uzziah had brought the nation of Judah to its greatest days since King David and King Solomon. But listen, as great as Uzziah was, his 50 plus years of rule ended with his death in 539 BC. He died. But in contrast to King Uzziah, King Jesus lives on. And King Jesus rules on. In Hebrews 1.8, it says, your throne, O God. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus. And isn't that great to see God the Father addressing his own son as God? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Listen, who is King Jesus? He's the divine king. And he's the supreme king. And number three, he is the exalted king. King Jesus is the exalted king. Again, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Jesus is sitting on a throne. And he is high and lifted up. And we all know what a throne is, right? A throne is a seat of authority and rule. But Isaiah saw a specific throne. This throne in Isaiah chapter 6 belongs exclusively. It's the seat of God's authority, God's rule. No one else can occupy this throne except Jesus. And we see concerning the throne that it's high and lifted up, and that expresses exaltation. The New American Standard translates it as, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. I love those words. Lofty and exalted. And listen, King Jesus is highly exalted over all created things, and His throne is highly exalted over all earthly thrones. In Psalm 103, verse 19, In Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. But having seen His throne, guys, check out His robe. 
Check out the train of his robe. Isaiah says the train of his robe filled the temple. Now his robe, this is Jesus' kingly robe. In Psalm 104, verse 1, it tells us that God, Jesus, is clothed with honor and majesty. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, I love this. Speaking on the robe of King Jesus, Revelation 19, 16 says that on his robe, at his thigh, so as his robe is covering him, imagine Jesus just covered in this kingly robe, and that part of the robe that covers his thigh was written the title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Listen, that is a designer label only King Jesus can wear. And it says that the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Question, how big is God's house? I don't know. But I imagine it to be pretty big. And here we see that the train of the robe of King Jesus carpets God's temple wall to wall. Listen, no king, no queen has ever carried a train this big. The message is clear. The message is that no king, no queen on earth has more honor and more majesty than King Jesus. Who is our king? Who is our Jesus? Listen, he is the divine king. He's the supreme king. He's the exalted king. And guys, he is the holy king. King Jesus is the holy king. Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, above it, speaking about the throne of Jesus... Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Let's first check out the zip code, the location. All this is happening in the house, verse 4 tells us. This house is called the temple in verse 1. I love this scene because I find here something interesting that the throne of King Jesus is not in a palace. You see, the palace, that's a place for politics, That's not where the throne of Jesus is. Nor is the throne of King Jesus in a corporate office. Because that's the place for commerce. But instead, Isaiah clearly tells us that the throne of King Jesus is where? In the temple. In God's temple. Isaiah 56 verse 7 tells us that God's temple is called the house of worship. That is where we find the throne of King Jesus, in the house of worship. Psalm 22 verse 3 says that God is enthroned in the praises of His people. And so Isaiah's eyes were opened to see into God's heavenly temple. 
Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. So that's where this is happening. In God's house. In the temple. But having seen the house, check out the choir. God is into big choirs. And He's got one in His house. In verse 2 it says, Above its seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his feet, and with two he covered... Or covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one cried to another. Now, Isaiah tells us as he sees this vision of King Jesus that he saw seraphim. Now, seraphim are angels, and the word seraphim means the burning ones. These angels are literally on fire for God. And each seraph we see, they cover his face with two wings in humility and reverence before God. And with two wings, he covers his feet in dedicated service to God. And with two wings, he flies to do the will of God. I love what the Bible commentator Ray Ortland said about the seraphim. Listen to this. He said, the seraphim hover in constant motion, ready to do God's will. Listen, they are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. I love that description. And this choir is made up of these angels, these seraphim. And I'll tell you, as they are singing and declaring the praises of God, this is the big sound of a big choir. This choir is made up of a large army of angels. We saw in Isaiah 6-5 that he is the Lord of hosts. If you have a more modern translation of the Bible, maybe your Bible says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is a big choir. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, John saw a similar vision, and he tells us, I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. What does that sound like? Around the throne of God, surrounded by these seraphim, these angels, declaring the praises of King Jesus. And John is saying in Revelation, the voices of thousands and millions of angels. And listen, their sound is so big and so loud that Isaiah says in verse 4 that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. I'll tell you, if there's anything you should know about heaven... The volume in heaven is loud. I don't think that our amps can find a decibel that loud. But it's loud. Isaiah 6.3 says that these angels, they cried one to another. That verb cried, it means to proclaim aloud. And what we see here is that worship in heaven is neither passive nor passionless. The sound of the angels can be heard and they can be felt. And I'll tell you, the praise of God's angels is this big and this loud because King Jesus is that big and that worthy to receive this kind of praise and this kind of worship. This is where I am amazed in the negative sense that there are churches 
filled with people who come to worship and they are bored with Jesus. We see it in the worship, we see it in their service, we see it on their faces. And it just seems like every opportunity we have to just gather as the people of God or to spend time in the presence of God, it's labeled as boring. But I'll tell you what, if your Jesus is boring, you've got the wrong Jesus. In fact, it's idolatry. It's idolatry because you have invented, you have created a false Jesus who does not exist, and you have established a place for that Jesus in your heart. There is no such thing as a boring Jesus. None of the angels are in heaven saying, holy, holy, holy again? (laughs) How many times do we have to sing this same song? This has got to be like the most boring service. And that's why some people, they... They think, you know what, I want to escape hell because I want to avoid torment, but I want to live here on earth as long as I can because I'm afraid of going to heaven because I think that's eternal perpetual boredom. Because when they hear that heaven is just worship, you know, night and day, day and night, just worship, you know what they're thinking? Their church. And they're thinking, good night, you're telling me that Heaven is going to be a church service that never ends? And I'll tell you what, too many people, they have a wrong vision of Jesus. That's why Isaiah 6 is so powerful, because it brings us back into the reality of who our Jesus is. In fact, listen to how they praise. Look at how they praise. It says, and one cried to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. I love this. He says that the seraphim, they express their praise to God by crying to one another and saying, holy, holy, holy. So try to imagine this as best as you can. You have the throne of King Jesus. Jesus is there. He's high and lifted up. And you've got these groups of angels, thousands of millions of angels. And one group says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And on the other side of the throne room, they say, yes, amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then another group and another group and back and forth, back and forth. They're shouting this and the doorposts are shaking and smoke is filling the presence of God. And in the midst of it all is Jesus. There's nothing boring about worship. Something boring about Jesus think that is happening right now. As we're sitting here, all of this is happening right now. And this act is not manufactured. It's not manipulated. It's the right response to all that God is and all that he does. But not only looking at how they worship, but listen to what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Listen, this is chorus with content. This is song with substance. This is doxology with theology. This is something more and something bigger than just la, la, la. This is holy, holy, holy. 
and the praise of God's angelic choir. It resonates with the truth of God's holiness, that King Jesus is holy, holy, holy. And I'll tell you, the holiness of Jesus, this is a truth that we have to remember. Oswald Chambers, born in 1874, went to heaven in 1917. Probably most famous for his classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He said, quote, There is a danger of forgetting that the Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense, blazing holiness of God with his love as the center of that holiness. Holy, holy, holy. That's who God is. This means he's infinitely perfect in himself. It means he's completely unique from all created things. Listen, when we say that Jesus is holy, what we are confessing is he is completely other than all things not God. And the Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness and the majesty of God's holiness and the incomparability of God's holiness. And so when the angels are saying, holy, 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 this is not just repetition, it's emphasis. God is holy, 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 and each word is boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. And the holiness of God, it distinguishes him absolutely, even from the sinless angels. But as all this praise is happening, we also see God's glory. In this scene that Isaiah describes, we see God's glory. And glory is the shining out of what God is. That's what we mean when we talk about God's glory. It's the shining out of what God is. And we see that God's glory is displayed on earth. Verse 3, it says, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And we also see God's glory displayed in heaven. Listen to this. It says in in verse 4, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Check this out. And the house was filled with smoke. Smoke. Now, the smoke could be the smoke rising from God's burning altar. Remember, we read that here in Isaiah 6. But it's important for us to understand that this smoke means something. It is the smoke of God's glory. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 8, in Revelation 15, 8, John said, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Now, every Thursday at our home, that's house cleaning day. And every Thursday, I know what my responsibilities are. Vacuum the house. Now, as great as our vacuum is, as much as I love our vacuum, there are still corners I can't get into. There are still areas that the vacuum can't reach. And I'm afraid to see what's there. But the thing with smoke, smoke can get everywhere. And I'm so thankful there are no smoke detectors required in heaven. I'm so thankful that the smoke of God's glory has free access in God's house. The message is that God's glory covers every square inch of God's house. 
Wherever you are, wherever you go, wherever you'll be, God's glory will be there. But notice how the holiness of Jesus affects the prophet. In verse 5, Isaiah says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Question, what else could Isaiah have said? I mean, how else could Isaiah have responded as we see what he saw? And so in view of the Holy King, Isaiah was stripped down to this. Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen, a right view of God brings a right view of us. A right view of God brings a right view of us. Someone said this, quote, It is not the constant thought of their sins, but the vision of the holiness of God that makes the saints aware of their own sinfulness. And this is evident in Isaiah's response. As he is privileged to see this amazing vision of King Jesus The conclusion for him was, woe is me, for I am undone. Now, I think that there's a lot of people in church, we've grown so familiar with the story that we read over those words with no second thought. But listen, we've got to understand, for those words to come out of Isaiah's mouth, this was gut-wrenching. This was like someone punched him as hard as they could in his stomach. To get the full force of what Isaiah is saying here when he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen to how some of these other translations translate his words. The English Standard Version says, Woe is me, for I am lost. The New American Standard says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. The New Living Translation says, It's all over. I am doomed. That was what Isaiah was stripped down to. These words are Isaiah's confessions to God. You see, in view of the holy king, Isaiah saw that he was a sinful man. When he says, woe is me for I'm undone, he attaches his statement because. Here is what Isaiah recognized about himself. I am a man of unclean lips. The New Living Translation puts it as, I am a sinful man. Why? Because what came out of Isaiah's mouth, it displayed the condition of his heart. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45? In Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So when Isaiah says, my lips are unclean, he's saying, God, my heart is filthy, it's dirty, it is full of sin. I am a sinner. I get it. I see you and I get it. I get the truth of who I am and what I am. But Not only for himself, but also for the society, the culture, the city, the people, the world that he was living in. He saw the truth about the nation when he said that I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean. The same way a right view of God brings a right view of us, it also, 
A right view of God brings a right view of society and culture. It brings a right view of people and people's lifestyle. This is why some of us can think back before we were Christians, we thought, what's wrong with abortion? What's, what's wrong with a gay lifestyle? What is wrong with cheating? And what is wrong with me putting myself in front of other people? But then you become Christians. And all of a sudden, there's this paradigm shift, and your whole worldview changes. Why? Because now you see the world clearly through the lens of Jesus. And now we say, wow. Okay, in view of holy, the Holy King Jesus, listen, abortion's wrong. In view of the Holy King Jesus, a gay lifestyle is wrong. In view of the Holy King Jesus, cheating and selfishness, all that stuff is wrong. People who have never cried out, woe is me for I'm undone, are those people who have not seen a clean and clear vision of King Jesus, nor have they heard the angel shout out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But we can't end this sermon here. Who is King Jesus? He is the divine king. He is the supreme king. He is the exalted king. He is the holy king. And listen, number five, he is the saving king. King Jesus is the saving king. Check out verses six and seven. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Remember back in verse 5, Isaiah recognized that he was undone, he was lost, he was ruined, he was doomed. He was a sinful man. And in response to that confession, we see how Jesus proved himself to be the saving king. As you just look at verses 6 through 7, there's some key words that are there that helps us understand the good news of this passage. We see that this, an angel went to God's altar and took a live coal. If your translation says a burning coal, that's a good translation. That's what it was. It was a piece of coal that was glowing. It was a piece of coal that was hot. There was heat coming out of this coal. And in the Bible, fire oftentimes illustrates both God's holiness and God's judgment. And notice where this coal came from. It came from the altar in God's house. An altar is the place for offering a sacrifice. And God has, as a piece of furniture in his house, an altar. That altar means something in God's house. It points to the cross of King Jesus. The altar on which King Jesus died for our sins and he paid the ransom price for our redemption and he satisfied God's wrath and he finished the work for our salvation. Listen. There is no God like our God. There is no religion that has a God that does for them what our King, what our God has done for us. On the cross, King Jesus became our sin. 
Your sins, my sin, all of it. He became it. And he was judged by God for our sins in our place. And listen, and the burning coal of God's holy judgment against sin, it fell upon Christ. And as a result of what Jesus accomplished for us on the altar called Calvary, we see that one of the seraphim took a live coal and he flew. To Isaiah. I believe that words matter in the Bible. And I'm so glad that we see here that the angel doesn't walk to Isaiah. He doesn't skip to Isaiah, but he flew. The moment Isaiah confessed his sins, an angel grabbed that coal and he flew to Isaiah. Question, how fast can an angel fly? I don't know, but I'm sure it's pretty fast. This is the point that I want us to understand tonight. That the moment we confess our sins to God, his mercy flies to us. His mercy flies to us. I think a great example of this is found back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. The backstory is that David had committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. In fact, he got her pregnant, and then trying to cover up his sin, he ends up murdering her husband. And confession should have come at that time, but he didn't confess. And so for one year, David sought to hide his crimes against God from the people. And during that year, we see in the Psalms how David was, he said his bones were dry. He was just living under the heavy conviction of God's spirit. But he was just stubborn. He didn't want to confess his sin. And then his friend Nathan the prophet comes to him. And he exposes David's sin. And we read in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Now, as great as those words are, we lose something in our English Bibles. Something is lost in translation. Because in the Hebrew Bible, here's how it reads. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. And then David finishes his confession against the Lord. Before David could even reach the period, God's mercy already flew to him. And I love this because in my mind, I just imagine God, every time we sin, the Lord is just... All right, confess, just confess your sin. I'm, I'm so ready. I'm just so ready to just pour out my mercy. Just confess your sin. But instead, we start listening to the devil screaming in our ear, you're such a loser. God is so frustrated with you. God is so disappointed with you. And you're such a hypocrite when you go to church. You're such a hypocrite when you worship. You shouldn't even read your Bible anymore. You're not even worthy to read the Bible. You're not worthy to share the gospel. You're not worthy to hang out with other people. You're such a loser. 
And God's in heaven, like, just, just confess, just confess. And we're like, oh, man, God will never forgive me. I just, I just, no, just forgive. And then all of a sudden you come to a place like this and you hear a message like, message like this. And you're like, God, God's ready to forgive. Lord, I'm so sorry. Mercy's already flown. But Lord, I didn't even get to finish my confession. And so when the Lord says he's ready to pardon, you know that scripture? That is how we need to think about God. Too often we think about God like he's a parole officer. Just constantly calculating, waiting for you to make your first mistake. But our dad in heaven, listen, when you look at the cross, we should never doubt the love of our dad. And when we sin and when we fail and we fall, we should never doubt the mercy of our dad. And some of you need to hear that tonight. I mean, we just get beat up by guilt and condemnation. And some of you, you think that you've sinned too many times or the sin that you committed was just too big. And, but here's what you need to remember. Grace will always outdistance sin. Grace will always outsize sin. That's why the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so as Isaiah said, I'm a sinner. God's mercy flew to him. And when that coal touched him, the angel pronounced, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. That is atonement. It's the good news of atonement. That's what King Jesus has done for you and me. That is what incorruptible love looks like. The reason why we think that God runs out of love for us and, and that his love isn't big enough to deal with our mess is because we think God's love looks like our love. But that's backwards. We're in the process of change where our love should look more and more like his love. And when God says, I've loved you, I love you with an everlasting love, do you understand it is impossible for God to love you any more than he already does? How do you go beyond everlasting? That's, that's infinity. I'm not the one saying that. God said it. So who am I to ever say, God, you ran out of love for me? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And here's the truth. God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's an incorruptible love. So when you experience that kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of mercy, then you can understand Isaiah's response in verse 8 when he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. (laughs) Send me. I am a ruined man who's been forgiven. I am a lost man who's been saved. I am a doomed man who's now going to heaven. 
And if I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to talk about anything, I just want to brag a lot about Jesus. Because my life has no meaning and it has no future apart from him. And so that's you and me. That's you and me. It's like what motivates us to go and open our mouth and tell our neighbors and tell our coworkers and tell the people that, that are closest to us about Jesus? Just the simple fact that we all get it. We are people, messy people who live in mess, but we're in the process of change because Jesus is a saving king. So who is our king? He is the divine king. He is the supreme king, the exalted king, the holy king, and the saving king. So how do we finish a message like this? Well, number one, maybe there's some here tonight that as you saw this big vision of Christ, you're thinking, goodness, that is not the Jesus that I worship. That's not the Jesus I'm trusting in to get me to heaven. And so your worship of King Jesus will be you giving your heart to this king. Down at at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, at the Bible College there, I had the opportunity to teach through the book of Isaiah. And we had a young girl in our class that when she came in, um, we had talked and she had told me how she was very, she's an active member at her church um, she was actually involved as one of the, um, the, the leaders for a women's ministry group. And, and her life was spent discipling young girls, helping them walk with Jesus. But by the end of the semester, she wrote me a note. And she said, I became born again in Isaiah 6. As we were studying through the book of Isaiah and we got to chapter 6 and she saw this Jesus, she realized, I don't know that Jesus. And I didn't know it, but right there and then in that class, she said, Jesus, come into my life and be my king. Be my savior. I had an opportunity to preach the same message over in eastern Canada. And after the service, a woman had brought a young girl to me, she, she had to have been in her mid to late 20s, and she was shaking. And the reason why she was shaking is because she was feeling the withdrawals of drugs. And this woman brought her to church because she was trying to help her get out of a life of prostitution. And as she came to me just shaking, this is, this is what she said. I want this King Jesus. She could get that out of her mouth. That was her worship. That was her doxology. And maybe there's someone here 
that your worship, your doxology tonight will be, Jesus, forgive me. Because I have diminished you and I have belittled you and I have brought you down to almost nothing. I brought Jesus down to mere human God-sized stature. But Jesus, you're more than a man. You're the God-man. And like Thomas, I want to say my Lord and my God and just worship you. For others of you, your worship might be the confession of sin. Tonight, the Lord just wants you to know that you have nothing to fear. But he wants you to come to him in confession. There is nothing that is going to take God by surprise. There's nothing that's going to shock him. You just need to know he's just waiting. He's ready to pardon. He's just waiting for you to open your mouth. And before you can even reach the period, mercy will have flown to you. That'll be your worship. As you resolve tonight, I'm done living with guilt. I'm done living with condemnation. I'm done scrubbing myself in the shower because I feel so dirty because of that act that I did. I'm done with cutting myself. So many young girls just cutting themselves because the internal pain is so real and so loud that they find relief in just slashing their body with razors. How deep must the pain be for a person to find relief in that? And King Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And maybe our worship will be just you and me united saying, Jesus, thank you. We love you. So tonight we're going to give you that opportunity to respond to Jesus, to King Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And as they do, we're just going to spend some time just responding vertically to God. You know, for the last hour, we've heard theology. But theology, when it just ends just at theology... That's the wrong place to end. The goal of theology is to fuel, it's to initiate and fuel doxology, which is praise. So theology comes to us from heaven to man. And then in doxology, it goes from man to God. And so we need to respond to this because if we don't respond to this message, then it just simply means we just didn't get it. We weren't listening or we didn't care. We didn't get it. But when we respond to it, whether it's tonight, you're going to say, Jesus, come into my heart. Or you're going to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Or you're just going to say, Jesus, you're great and awesome and I just want to worship you. We've got to respond. And so we'll sing a song. And then after we sing a song, there's something I'm going to invite you guys to do. And then we'll just spend um, a few more moments after that just worshiping the Lord. And then we'll just close out the evening. All right? So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you 
for giving us Isaiah 6. I want to thank you for giving to us such a clear and vivid description of your son Jesus. And Lord, tonight I pray that you would take these words and just make them real to every one of us. And as we move into a time of responding to it, responding to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take full ownership of this portion, as you did the others. But, Lord, we're asking you to now just take full ownership of this portion of the night. And as you lead, we just want to follow. So, show us the prognosis of our hearts and bring us into a place where we can leave out of this building with clean hearts, with renewed, clean love for Jesus.